Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Vince Gutierrez from movementthinker.org. So today's post will be pretty different. Um, It's not clinical at all. Well, mostly not clinical. Typically, I write about stuff that affects the PT profession, but this one's going to discuss, you know, personal finance um, and aspects that my wife and I have lived through um, within the profession. You know, I just finished reading the book, The Next Millionaire Next Door, which is a takeoff from The Millionaire Next Door, obviously. It's the next book. And this book discusses whether or not, you know, the principles that applied in that book 40 years ago could still apply today. And I'm just going to take some of the, the sections of the book that, you know, impacted me a little bit and discuss them regarding how they affected, you know, my wife and I and, and uh, how they've affected our lives. You know, so the first aspect here says... The odds of becoming extraordinarily wealthy while starting with nothing were not very high. All right. So me personally, I come from humble beginnings. You know, my first job was at the age of 13. I worked as a ranch hand for uh, for Jim out in Elwood. You know, both Carl and I were initially hired and Carl is, uh, you know, great friend, still a friend to this day uh, by Norm. Uh, you know, Norm was recruiting for, for Jim out there to be a ranch hand. And so Norm was the bus driver at school. And Norm had the in with all of the kids. You know, everybody loved Norm. And so uh, Norm recommended both of us to work for Jim. After the first day of bailing hay and uh, stacking hay in the loft, Carl didn't come back. You know, it just, it wasn't for him. You know, and, and Jim was paying me about $5 an hour back in 1995, you know, I was, you know, 13, 14 and, uh, I felt rich, you know, after leaving his house with $20, I'd ride, you know, I'd ride my bike down to the gas station and, uh, and buy an ice cream. (laughs) I'd put the rest away into the savings account at the bank, you know, into the savings account at the bank, you know, gosh, I think about that now and it just want to kick myself. You know, the job was manual labor, you know, I was mucking horse stalls, uh, Mucking horse stalls, uh, really nice way of saying picking up horse shit and, uh, cleaning out the horse piss. You know, I'd have to give the horses hay and grain at night. The most important part of the job though was building an outdoor rodeo arena. Cause, uh, Jim, Jim was a calf roper and he needed a place to practice. And I believe the rodeo arena that we built was uh, 300 by 100. You know, I had the alley for the cattle to come back to in order to get to the chute. You know, I remember using the cattle prod at such a young age. Um, proud of that, you know, because uh, we built something that wasn't there before. And it still stands to this day. You know, I, I continued to work for Jim for almost another four years while I was working other jobs. You know, I worked for minimum wage. Again, with Carl at an ice cream shop. <laughs> Remember how me saying I would spend my money on ice cream? Oh, now I was getting it for free. So the job was working with the former mayor of Elwood, uh, Mr. C, we'll call him. And uh, both Carl and I got fired from this job by the end of summer. We were young and dumb. You know, not much has changed aside from our ages. Carl was leaving for a summer trip to France, you know, as part of his foreign language course in school. And uh, before he left, we had a banana fight. Yep. We had a banana fight and, uh, you know, the ice cream shop, you know, shut down shortly after firing us. But, um, (laughs) anyway, so the old bananas, we would use them for, um, 
making banana shakes. You know, the new bananas were made for banana splits. And we took the soft bananas and started throwing them at each other. You know, there was nobody watching us. You know, the owner was gone for a while. And uh, <laughs> we both played baseball, you know. So Carl was the pitcher. I was the catcher. So we both had pretty strong arms. And um, apparently one of us threw a banana that went in between two pipes right above the light switch. And when the owner came back, he went to go flip the switch and his finger landed in soft banana. Neither of us knew there were security cameras. <laughs> there were security cameras in the building, right? And so um, the owner came back and, you know, he watched the video and, you know, Carl was in France, so I was the only one there. And he fired both of us. So, you know, I told Carl he was fired. And, um, you know, the ice cream shop went out of business shortly after we were fired. You know, both of us were influencers in the in the town you know carl's mom was the pastor you know both of us volunteered in so many different ways in the town and you know kids would you know we would help kids out with basketball and we coached baseball and we uh taught the gym at the vacation bible school taught gym who teaches gym <laughs> we uh we helped out at vacation bible school and let the kids run around right but you know they saw us as authority figures uh, we were 13 14 <laughs> who's an authority figure at that age. Right. And, um, but we were influencers. And so, you know, we no longer worked there. The ice cream business slowly, you know, went out of business anyway. So we both moved on to our, you know, our first big boy job. Um, I just turned 16 and Tom, you know, Tommy knows who Tommy is. Um, so Tom, the next door neighbor, you know, and he's a you know brother from another mother, you know, he got a job at Sam's club. Um, for those of you in the know, who's number one, 8298, Who's really number one? The members. Yeah, that's right. I still remember. Anyway, so <laughs> so the three of us, um, you know, Carl, Tom, and myself, you know, we worked at Sam's Club for years. You know, it was here that I started learning more about merit raises and uh, management, business, and responsibility. When I went in for the interview at uh, Joliet Sam's Club, I remember the manager, Jeff, asking me some questions. And, uh, you know, Jeff says, so I see you're still in high school. And at the time, I went to Providence Catholic High School. You know, it's a harder school, right, in terms of uh, the local public compared to the local public schools. Jeff said, so I see you guys are still in high school. And uh, he asked me, are you worried about your studies at all? You know, taking on an extra 25 hours per week might impact your grades. And I said, nope. <laughs> Just full of confidence, you know. Jeff said, uh, you're either really smart or really dumb. You're hired. And, you know, and initially I didn't realize what he meant. You know, you're either really smart or really dumb, you know, because at the time, I mean, I was pretty smart and I think I'm still kind of smart now. But um, but now I realize, you know, if you were really dumb, you just didn't care anyways. And um, anyway, so Jeff took a chance on us. Anyway, I worked my way up the ranks at Sam's Club, went from making just below eight dollars an hour when I was hired up to like fourteen dollars an hour as, um, you know, just a jack of all trades in there. You know, so as a youngster, you know, I was pretty young, making $14 an hour, which some people aren't making today, you know, 20 years later-ish. Craziness. Um, you know, I quickly accumulated thousands in my savings account, again, at the local bank. And then I gave it to my family to help them buy some land. If I knew then what I know now, I would have bypassed a savings account and just put the money into the stock market and let it ride. You know, also at this time, I was buying $10 per pay period of Walmart stock. Didn't sound like much, but by the time I was ready to take it out to pay for some college expenses, it had worked its way up to 15 grand. 
You know, I still remember Mr. Tired, uh, Leonard, Leonard T, LT. Uh, for those of you that don't know, that's how LT talks. <laughs> you know, he, he was uh, sitting a younger version of me down and telling me to invest in the stock market. At the time, LT was probably in his 50s, was working full time as a firefighter and full time as Mr. Tires. You know, as a matter of fact, there are many guys that I worked with uh, that use Sam's Club as their investment money. You know, they that was their second gig, their side gig in order to build up their uh, their nest egg. You know, I worked at Sam's from 96 till about 2003. That's right. I'm kind of old. Which time I got into PT school. All this brings me to after I graduated from PT school. I immediately had $80,000 in student loan debt and then bought a house for another $275,000. My monthly bills totaled about $2,700 a month. My first job as a PT paid me $62,500 a year, which surprisingly, the average hasn't increased too much for uh, new grads over the past you know, 15, 20 years. After paying my bills, I had about $500 left per month for food, clothing, gas, retirement savings. You know, I was pretty much house poor. At that time, you know, my net worth in 2008 was $355,000. By that time I had moved from by the time I had moved from the house, you know, it had lost $50,000 from the housing bubble burst. So you know, we paid that much money for it, and then it lost another fifty thousand dollars in in equity. It hurt, right? You know, but the the story isn't all doom and gloom. To put it in perspective, we're no longer in the negatives and well on our way to become the millionaire next door. But more on that to come. The next part that got me was uh, anyone who has amassed a fortune on his or her own is often viewed with suspicion. As if the only pathway to financial success requires either high levels of economic outpatient care, winning the lottery, or dishonesty. You know, the older I get, the more I realize that it's not very hard to become wealthy. You know, again, I, I wish I knew then what I know now. Just by living on less than we make and investing the rest, we are increasing our net worth month to month. It's getting to the point that the money we invested is growing at a rate that's higher than the, than the amount that we actually invest now month to month. The goal is to eventually be able to use this money to substitute a salary. This should be everyone's goal. Unless they're literally, on, they're literally planning on working until they go to the grave. You know, if, if you're going to work to the day you die, then how much nest aid do you need? But if, if at any point in time you want to take your life back... You got to have money coming in, right? Because we need to be able to afford to survive. I think back on the mistake of buying that house and, um, you know, it was in a price way out of my range um, in a neighborhood that was populated mostly by retired folk who had already had a lifetime to accumulate their wealth. You know, I didn't fit into that neighborhood and I was going broke in the process of staying there. I've yet to win the lottery. Unless you count the winnings from the stock market, you know, as playing the lottery, you know, I, I, I'm not deceptive or dishonest in how I earn money or compound our savings. I have yet to borrow a dime from family members and have yet to inherit anything of monetary value outside of a strong work, work ethic, you know, which allows me to make some money. The next quote is, I make more money now with my investments than working and people have no clue. I like it that way. My non-retirement investments, you know, which also includes my emergency fund, are making money daily. The money is invested as followed. Um, 40% in currency, such as crypto and a little bit of gold or uranium or plutonium. 
30% single stocks and 30% ETFs. In order for me to retire, I need this money to make at least $5,000 per month. Let me take that back. This is the money that I play with um, in the stock market. I also have a 403B or a 401k or a SEP IRA, depending on which account you're looking at. Um, and that money is managed by somebody who's you know, a lot smarter than I am. But the money that I get to play with, um, it's making about $160 per month, you know, invested the way that I have it listed above. To put it in perspective, the money is making about 13 to 15% per year. I understand right now it's not a lot of money, but we just started investing in the previous four months. You know, the goal is to get to the point that the investments will allow me to buy back some of my time from work. I'd be satisfied when I can buy back one week's worth of time per month which means that the investments will need to make about $25,000 per year. As a business owner, I don't have personal time. I don't have vacation time. I need to make money in order to be able to afford to take time off from work. Buying this time back will give me leverage to pursue some of the other hobbies, such as you know blogging, teaching, and doing this podcast, which is why you haven't heard from me in a while, because I'm out there trying to bust my butt to make a little bit more money. The next quote is, we've been married 22 years, three children, three dogs, two horses. We have lived in the same modest 1,900 square foot, 1975 era home for 20 years. I have an MS in chemical engineering. My husband has a PhD in chemical engineering and is now a VP at a chemical company. Boy, there's a lot to take from this passage, right? So my wife and I have been together for about nine years. We have four kids in an 1,100 square foot home. That's right, an 1,100 square foot home. The home is pretty tight for our growing family, but it's also the reason why we've been able to build build wealth over the past few years. You know, our mortgage is roughly 15% of our after-tax income. We've been able to pay down roughly $50,000 in credit card debt and car payments in the previous two years. We also paid down an, an additional $15,000 in student loans in the previous two years. As much as we want to move to the bigger home, you know, with home prices right now, this is this is not the time for us to move up and home. Once the prices drop or we save enough money to buy a house with cash, which may be in the next, you know, two to three years, uh, we'll make that move. Right now, I'm 41 and my wife's, you know, 38-ish. I say ish because it's ish. She's my wife. <laughs> and I'm just now realizing the power of margin, right? So I'm 41 years old and I just understand margin. God, I wish this stuff was taught in high school, you know, and, and I, I define margin as the amount of money left over at the end of the month, you know, after paying all the expenses for that same month. Margin is needed when invested wisely. And my understanding of wisely is pretty rudimentary at the moment, um, you know, but when the money is growing month to month, this is what's going to give us the financial freedom that we're seeking. Old dogs can new, learn new tricks. Took me four decades to figure this out. Next, it's worth mentioning that the average single-family home in America is approximately 2,400 square feet. The larger the home, the less the owner has to transform into wealth. All right, so I read that 2,400 square feet, and I was just like, holy shit, that's huge. Because, <laughs> you know, we live in a very small house compared to this. You know, our home is less than half the size of the average home in America. Although it's tight in our house, increasing our home size by double 
would be more home than we need. We're looking to move up towards maybe 1,900 square feet, right? That, and that might be comfortable for us. We need more space for the kids as they grow up, and um, we need a bigger driveway to accommodate the cars as the kids get older. But by holding off on moving, we're able to save more and prolong the fees that we will have to pay in order to move. I just don't see moving up in home for us happening in the next, you know, six months to a year. And, you know, if we hold off for two to three years, it's possible that we can completely pay off the house that we're in. So it would be nice, you know, to be under 45 with a paid off home. You know, we're, we're weighing our options at this point. The next quote, the burden to ensure financial independence and comfort in retirement is likely to be mostly the responsibility of the individual. So for those of you that are new to um, finances and personal finances and, you know, trying to create um, retirement income, I highly recommend checking out Dave Ramsey or Choose FI to better understand financial independence. Unless one has very few expenses, depending on the government program for retirement might not be a great plan. In order to get to the point that one doesn't have to rely on the government for all their living expenses at retirement, you got to start investing now. You know, there's that old saying, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. The same holds true for investing. If you start today, you're going to be in a better place, you know, 20 years from now, 10 years from now, maybe five years from now than you are today. Next quote, but consuming today in anticipation of higher levels of future income and trying to keep up the arms race of gadgets, cars, and accessories are universal problems. Keeping up with the Joneses, right? We see this on social media. It's no longer about comparing us to our immediate neighbors, comparing us to our family. Social media has increased the number of, we'll put it in air quotes, friends that we're exposed to on a daily basis. What's worse is that few people on social media actually post about their losses, right? Most are posting pictures of their new cars, houses, vacations, fancy meals. This is a lot of exposure to those living the dream life, or at least the dream life for a short period of time. Of course, seeing others live this life can, you know, lead to the same wants. Social media is essentially free advertisements for companies, you know, as their customers are off taking Instagram photos of their new doohickey car, truck, house, vacation, jet ski, boat, you know, etc. The more we consume on car payments, eating out, large house, timeshares, vacations, morning coffees, the less we have to invest in our future. Spending money in this fashion is a choice. In order to continue to live like a rich person and be able to invest, one has to make more money year to year. Sometimes we sacrifice our time in order to live the dream life. You know, as as I'm talking about this, I came into work two hours late today. That two hours gave me time to eat breakfast, play with the kids, see my daughter off to school, spend time with my wife, do the dishes. Only working six hours instead of eight made the day go by much quicker and gave me joy. Right? If I had a large car payment or a large house payment, I might not have been able to make the decision to come into work late. You know, these are the trade-offs. In the bigger picture... Buying more stuff may be the reason why one has to work until 65 or older than 65 instead of retiring at 50. Buying stuff 
may cause a person to work for an extra decade instead of taking that time back sooner. And that's why we're a little bit more conscious now about what we buy and the vacations we take. And, um, you know, we try to use credit card points as much as we can for hotel stays. Uh, We try not to spend money. The next the next uh, phrase, but income isn't the same as wealth. Income is what you bring home today. Wealth is what you have tomorrow. You know, the basic income is your yearly compensation. For instance, if you make $15 an hour, your income is about $30,000 per year. Wealth is more related to your net worth. Income is important, but wealth is freedom, right? I've been listening a lot to the uh, Choose FI podcast. And I, I just learned that, you know, freedom is equal to about 25 to 33 times your annual spending. To use a real life example, our annual spending is about $50,000 for $50,400, right? In order for us to retire with a similar lifestyle that we have today, we would need between 1.2 and $1.7 million. Having this amount of money saved in a 50-50 fund of stocks and bonds is expected us to allow to continue to have a similar lifestyle with a low risk of burning that money out before we die. Obviously, there are some variables that will change over time, such as we expect to pay off our mortgage, which would lower our monthly expenses. We don't need to pay for term life insurance, uh, which also would lower our monthly bills. One of our goals is to geo-arbitrage, uh, which means moving to uh, a place that's much cheaper than Illinois, which, you know, at this point isn't that hard to find a place cheaper than Illinois. Um, and that would also lower our monthly expenses considerably. Living in Illinois costs us considerably, considerably more than living in, you know, Tennessee or Poland, for example. COVID has also changed our way of thinking. Prior to COVID, we were living nearly paycheck to paycheck. We spent a lot of money yearly. During COVID, I stopped seeing patients for over three months. That really highlighted our need to have more money saved as an emergency fund. When you don't work for three months, yeah, life gets pretty tight. You know, it's a good thing my wife has got a strong work ethic also because she carried us for three months. And um, I don't want to be in that position again to where I feel like we need to be carried by one person. And so, you know, I'd like us to get to the point to where we can both take time off. You know, these are questions that, that, or or sorry, um, how long can you survive if your income disappeared? Would you feel forced to take from your retirement account? You know, assuming you have a retirement account. These are questions that we had to answer when I was off work. You know, thankfully our savings plus what my wife earned was enough to carry us through until it was safe to return to seeing patients again. But that's a scenario I don't want to go back to, right? Currently, our net worth or annual spending, you know, is sitting at nine times. And we're well on our way to hitting the 25 times in the next 10 years. And and I'd like to give a shout out to Jared Casaza. Uh, For those of you that don't know, check out fifthwheelpt.com. You know, he inspired me to write this blog, actually, because I was reading his blog and I saw that he was posting his numbers and doing it relatively regularly about where he's at in terms of his um, net worth and financial independence. And I'm a little older than uh, Jared, so yeah, you know, maybe a little bit more conservative. I didn't, I don't, I rarely ever share numbers. 
um, at least publicly. I do it with students and individually, but um, as we talk finances, but I've never done this publicly. And so at the age of 40, I'm well behind some in the younger generation, you know, specifically if you look at Jared's um, blog, I'm well behind where Jared's at. And that's okay. I'm not, you know, I'm not stressing over it, but, um, you know, it's causing me to make some different choices. And um, I also think that I'm well ahead of the network that raised me, you know, compare, comparing myself versus my dad at my age, I'm well ahead of where my dad was at. So, you know, Next quote, those who want to be truly financially independent rely instead on savings and passive income that invested capital can generate. This took me 40 years to figure out. You know, everyone talks about passive income, but it took me a while to get it. You know, I was putting money aside into retirement accounts such as 401ks and Roth IRAs because it's what I was supposed to do, right? Now I understand why I should put my money into the Roth first and then put money into my SEP IRA. If I made more money than what I make now, I would put money into the SEP IRA first and until we got below the 22% tax bracket, and then I would invest in the Roth. I also started a business a few years ago, and this also allows me to save money in taxes. It took me 40 years to learn ways to increase my savings rate. It's not too late for you, right? When I worked at PT and Spine, it was my first job, right, 62500 I invested 2% into my 401k. That was the amount that gave me the match. I didn't invest any additional money, and I didn't have any additional money to invest if I wanted to. Remember, I had an extra $500 a month at the end of the month. When I went to Payless, I invested 5% in order to get the match. Still much less than the 10% that the proverbial they say you need in order to... Um, retire, and much less than the 15% that Dave Ramsey speaks to. Now we invest a little more than 15% into both retirement and other after-tax funds. You know, this doesn't include the money that we're investing for our kids' college. Neither my wife or I had any help for college. You know, even if we don't pay for all the kids' college, any help that we give them is way more help than either one of us received. We both had to work our ass off, right? Now, I understand that investing money is not just about retirement. It's about buying back time so we can stop working for money at an earlier age or take more family trips without worrying about money or we can go to Poland to spend more time with my wife's family or we can take our parents out to dinner to show gratitude or et cetera, et cetera. You know, investing is more than just having something to look forward to at retirement age. Investments help us reach goals for both near and long term. Without having a fully funded emergency fund and investments on top of that, the options to take time away from work just isn't there. Next quote. Expected net worth equals age times income divided by 10. All right, so again, we're going to talk real numbers again, right? Our expected net worth is about $530,000. We're about $200,000 short, just less of $200,000 short of where we were expected to be at the age that we're at currently. You know, there's a few reasons for this, and most of them are my doing. (laughs) I didn't really have a good wage until I was near 30, as I spent many years going to school and taking on student loan debt. I made a few financial mistakes in which I spent more money on a house than I should have, and because of this, I had to sell the house during the recession, which also cost me a lot of money. 
my wife had no student loan debt and is paid well for her position. <laughs> so, yeah, this this debt is mostly me. Uh, okay, this debt is all me. <laughs> the, the part that we have going for us, though, is, uh, as Dave Ramsey puts it, we have a big shovel. This means that our combined income is better than that of the average American. You know, so we've got a big shovel from which to dig out of the hole. So this allows us to throw more money into our retirement avenues, you know, to the tune of 50, 15% this year. This does not take into account the money that we're saving in, in after-tax accounts. This after-tax account has a few purposes. You know, it acts as an emergency fund. It serves as a get-out-of-work-free fund, as a just-in-case-I-want-to-take-a-few-days-off-from-work. It serves as a mean for us to travel to Poland. You know, it's, it's going to act as a down payment on our next house. And it will help us to quit working before we pull from retirement. So this fund serves a lot of purposes, but, you know, once it was above $12,000, the emergency fund portion of that would be covered, you know, and, and I expect to get there in the next, you know, three to six weeks. From there, anything above $12,000 would be used for the next purpose down the line. And at some point in the future, we're going to have to move up in home. Based on our trajectory, we could pay off our current home in the next three years. That would free up a lot of money to put down on the next house. We would then start the process of building the after-tax fund back up again above the emergency fund needed. In the job of managing finances, we measure success by the difference in actual versus expected net worth. You know, this is very clear-cut and it sounds harsh at the same time. But I guess it depends on which side of the net worth equation you're sitting on, right? I don't like to be rated as less than in any endeavor that I set myself towards. Seeing as how we are falling short in the expected net worth category, we started putting away an extra $1,000 a month into some sort of investment that is tied to the stock market. Our savings rate this year has increased to greater than 20% of our income. It took choices. You know, I rarely, you know, go out to get lunch anymore and instead I buy shepherd pies or make pizza at night and take that to work. You know, saving three to ten dollars a day adds up to significant money at the end of the month that can be put into some sort of investment vehicle. The next quote is only 54 percent of Americans could manage a four hundred dollar emergency expense. Dude, can you understand that? I can because it was us, right? We were living beyond our means. Um, we were living paycheck to paycheck. You know, it started after we got married. We took a honeymoon to Alaska and came back $10,000 in debt. You know, and this is over and above our uh, credit cards at the time and the student loan debt that we had. You know, at, at our low point or high point, however you want to look at it, we were about $25,000 in debt to high interest credit cards. We had about $15,000 in car debt. And I still had about $40,000 in student loan debt. All told, our debt was about seventy grand, And that didn't include the $150,000 in a home mortgage, right? We were making good money. And if we incurred a $400 emergency uh, expense, you know, such as a car falling apart, we would have paid with it with Visa, Discovery, Discover, or American Express. And um, fast forward just a few years. Our debt load now is down to under $141,000 in the house. We have $0 in credit card debt. We bought a new car because our family outgrew the previous one. And we have $4,500 left on that car. And student loans are under $10,000. Currently, we're now fully funding 
two Roth IRAs, putting money towards college for the kids, putting enough money into a SEP IRA to keep us in the 12% tax bracket, and have an emergency fund that is funded for about two months of living. It took us, uh, took me, my wife is younger than I am, remember that, took us nearly 40 years to become money smart. We were simply working harder to pay off our past instead of working smarter to pay for our future. If we can do it, anyone can do it. We're not geniuses, right? It starts with the simple premise of spend less than you make and invest the difference. The next quote, 72% of millionaires surveyed report that when purchasing a home, they saw a neighborhood that had excellent public schools. You know, this quote stuck out to me. You know, like I said, we have four kids ranging from eight down to eight months. You know, the house we live in is 1,100 square feet. We need to move up in home in order to accommodate the growing family. You know, we're, we're actively in the process of looking for homes. And we narrowed the cities down to four, all of which are within the same excellent school district. We decided that we're willing to pay a little bit more in taxes to reduce the need to send the kids to a more expensive private school. My parents aren't millionaires, right? Or maybe they are, and they're just really good at hiding it. Um, but I doubt it. They spent $5,000 per year to send me to a private school, which was really awesome, right? The school districts for my parents um, is ranked 2 out of 10, with 10 being the best. So, like, to put that into perspective, if I had gone to the public high school, that school was ranked, you know, a 2 out of 10, which means it's in the, you know, bottom 20%. Um, they made a conscious decision to send me to the better ranked school, and that decision might actually be the reason why I'm in the position that I am today. Another thing to consider, you know, I got five brothers and a sister, and they all went to that two out of ten school, and none of them finished. So, you know, I'm sure, and that's not a slight on them, you know, it's just facts are facts. And um, and I'm sure that weighed in my parents' decision on where to send me to school. You know, and, and I want to do similar for my kids. You know, I want them to be in a, a school district that caters to their needs and challenges them to be better, you know. We're only looking at houses with school districts ranked, you know, from 8 to 10 out of 10. We'll make, we'll make these sacrifices elsewhere as long as it puts our kids in the better school district. At the time of this writing, um, the housing market was raising at a rate of 17%. You know, our plan is to wait for the housing market to calm down a little bit before making a decision. You know, this time will allow us to continue to invest aggressively in the hopes that we can pay a large portion, if not completely pay for the house that we buy next in cash. Previously, we uh, we were just looking at the house and the amenities within the uh, within the house. Over the previous four to six years, I'd say that we're now thinking differently. Next quote, 70 percent of millionaires know how much they spend on food, clothing and shelter each year. They engage in activities that align with building and sustaining wealth, such as studying investments, reading trade magazines, and working. My wife and I had the working part down, right? Working is just part of life for us, and that's the easy part. I didn't grow up in a house that managed on a budget, and neither did my wife. My parents just tried to make it. You know, once per week on my dad's payday, we would get fast food. Mind you, there were a lot of mouths to feed when I was a kid. You know, there were I have five brothers and a sister. Um, but at any point in time, there could be eight to 12 people from multiple generations living in my parents' house. I didn't learn how to manage finances as a kid. I only learned how to work and provide. I wouldn't say that I started becoming good with money until about two years ago. 
But again, this was after we were already $70,000 in non-mortgage debt. It's not too late for you to learn about how to become better with money. You know, I now spend small portions of my day managing our non-retirement accounts, meet quarterly with our long-term wealth investor, uh, wealth advisor, sorry. You know, I read blogs, I listen to podcasts, and I take actions to ensure that we're building wealth over the course of time. Anyone can start doing this. You know, there's an old phrase that uh, things that get measured can improve. We didn't start making progress until we started to measure our monthly budget against our monthly income. You can do that also. Next quote, ultimately your ability to build and grow wealth over time will be shaped by what you do, not what's in your head. This was huge for me. I used a wealth management company in the past. The more that I learned, the less I appreciated the advice that was given to me. Now I use an advisor in which we have quarterly meetings with the primary purpose being to teach me something new that we haven't discussed in the past. The advice that I get is worth the price as I'm consistently getting returns above the S&P 500 now. Prior to this year, I would say that my knowledge base was uh, on investing was um, simply one, put some money into a 403B and get the match and let it ride in a target date fund. <laughs> um, put money into a Roth and um, three, don't spend it. <laughs> that was the end of it. Invest it and don't spend it. You know, my knowledge base was pretty low. I'm learning more and more weekly. And now, you know, I'm seeing three months returns that would have taken me decades to get compared to putting my savings into the bank, you know, or a CD. Again, it all starts on, you know, living on less than you make. And um, you got to have money at the end of the month. Because without that money at the end of the month, you've got nothing to invest. And, and again, it took us 40 years to finally get there. Next quote. College costs have increased 153% between 1984 and 2016. I'm 41 years old. I graduated from my master's program for physical therapy in 2007. When I graduated from college, I had a total of $88,000 in student loans. A larger than wanted percentage of that was from one year at UIC. I can't begin to understand that new students are facing $100,000 plus. 200,000 plus or 300,000 plus in student loans, you know, and the cost of PT continues to go up because of a couple factors. The schooling is longer than when I graduated in 2007. Some schools have added one semester and other schools have added slightly more than that in order to complete the, the degree. You know, I went back to school to finish a doctorate, but for the most part, I think 75% of the school was paid by uh, Payless Hospital. And I only had to pay 25%. So I figured, hell, get a, get a, a doctorate degree for 25% of the cost. It just seemed too good to be true, right? And um, the price of credit continues to go up over the course of time. Pair this with the fact that salaries haven't gone up as dramatically over time. And I have compassion for what new graduates are experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis financially. I have students with under $50,000 in student loan debt, and I'm amazed at how well this student can do financially in terms of financial, um, in terms of financial freedom. And then I've also had students with over $300,000 in student loans and wonder how the student's going to survive for the next 10 to 20 years. I'm 14 years removed from my master's program, and I still have some student loan debt. A little more than $12,000 uh, remaining-ish, you know, $10,000 to $12,000. Um... 
I make the minimum payments most of the time, and now I invest the difference. There may come a time when it is smarter for me to pay off the loan completely, but um, right now is not that time. So I use the money that I make in my investments to make extra payments now on my student loan. So like theoretically, we have enough money saved that I could pay off the student loans today. But in today's world, that money is making, you know, 13 to 15% interest in the market. And my student loan is much less than that. And so it's only logical to use the excess money that I'm making from the investments to pay down that student loan. Next quote, select a vocation that is not only unique and profitable, pick one you love. A little more background about me. I initially studied to be a teacher. I couldn't continue down that path because there were some ethical issues that I experienced while at one of the local schools. It wasn't something I was going to be able to do as a career and sleep well at night. You know, while in undergrad, I was recruited to become a PT. This in and of itself is crazy because PT is extremely competitive to to get into the field. I didn't realize that at the time. You know, I'm happy I chose this field. There there have been some ethical issues that I faced in PT over my career, but I was able to leave that location and transition to a different company or location. All in all, PT is a field that can be profitable, and I still wake up every morning excited to go to work and treat patients. You know, as a note, my debt-to-income ratio was just above one when I started, and now my debt-to-income ratio is less than 0.1. When the ratio is higher than two, and definitely higher than three, I wouldn't say that this profession is profitable for that particular person. How one becomes a PT is very important. Choosing the cheapest school is one of the first criteria I give to undergraduates that are hoping to enter the profession. This usually is a letdown for students because it means they may have to live at home with their parents for a few more years. I hear from many students that they want to take the last two to three years of school and move away from home and live in a different location. Doing this costs money, though, and that money has to be paid back at some point. Moving away from home will drive that debt-to-income ratio much higher than it needs to be before starting a new job. It's just not worth it. Next quote. Be careful in selecting a spouse. This is freaking huge. My wife is awesome, you know, and, and I'll say it over and over again. As much as she enjoys the nice things, she has the ability to just shut down spending. She's a first-generation immigrant and was raised on a farm in Poland. I'd like to think that I'm a hard worker, you know, at least within the profession. Um, But she works hard both at work and at home. She outworks me. And there's not too many people that I'm going to say that about. You know, with four kids, she saves us money in so many ways. And she is the CEO of the house. Most decisions go through my wife. And I'm more than happy to defer those decisions to her. For instance, we have been debating about moving up in home, and it's a common topic of conversation in our house. You know, we had a sense of urgency to buy a house about 18 months ago, but now we are more than willing to wait off the market. She's logical when it comes to finances and doesn't make many emotional decisions regarding spending. I can't stress this enough. Choosing a spouse that shares the same values is critical to success in life, and this goes way beyond finances. The next uh, quote, 86% of those who drive status motor vehicles are not millionaires. Previously, I would have believed that wealthy people drove nice cars. 
television, pop culture, social media, professional athletes. You know, there's a lot that plays into that stereotype. You know, I used to work as a ranch hand, but I also bailed hay for a local farmer. And the farmer figured out how to get others to pay for his life, which is pretty cool. You know, the story's great. He drove diesel cars and had great gas mileage. You know, um, he made his own diesel. Pretty cool story. You know, I learned from him that the easiest way to become wealthy is to avoid giving your, your money away for nice cars. The less money that you give away, the more money that you will have to invest and build capital. Next quote. To build wealth, minimize your realized or taxable income and maximize your unrealized income, such as wealth, capital appreciation without a cash flow. This is a strategy that took me a long time to learn. You know, for instance, we are currently in the 12% tax bracket. Owning a business saves us about $8,000 per year in taxes. This means that if I were to become an employee again, that I would need an extra $4 an hour um, in either pay or benefits to make up for the difference in taxable income. The less money that the government gets, the more money in our pocket, right? We keep ourselves in the 12% tax bracket by putting money into SEP IRAs or 403Bs. And then once we got down to the 12% tax bracket, then we loaded up on our Roth IRA. There are investments that will continue to build wealth and taxes can either be deferred or eliminated. For instance, my wife has a 403B match. We always take the match benefit first. If we need to put more into the tax-deductible accounts in order to get us to the 12% tax bracket, we'll either put more into her 403B or my SEP IRA. Then we invest into either the health savings account or the Roth IRA. If one has access to a health savings account, this is the ultimate investing tool. This is, of course, assuming that it can be invested into a basic S&P account. Taxes are not paid on the money before going into the account, and if the money is taken out for health, for health uh, reasons or, or after retirement ages, then taxes are not taken out at that point either. This is the ultimate tool because it avoids taxes going in and taxes going out. The less money we give to the government, the more money we have in our pocket to build wealth and generational legacy for our kids. I believe that I know what to do better with my money than I believe that the government knows what to do with my money. And because of that... I want to maximize as many loopholes as possible in order to keep the government off of my uh, keep the government's hands off my money. Because if if I want to give money to charity, I think I should be the one to say which charity or which group gets that money, not the government. The next quote, the characteristics of behaving and believing that our own actions impact our ultimate financial standing is related to net worth regardless of one's income or age. So prior to 2016, I was an employee. I had an employee mindset, and I believed that if I just worked hard, that I would be rewarded. You know, I busted my ass at my job and did everything that I could to earn more money. What I learned was that the hospital system I worked for was more akin to prison than a business. And it sounds harsh, and I don't mean it to sound harsh, right? But, um, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I, I love the people that I worked with, for the most part, you know, not all of them. But I learned to earn more money and, and, and I thought that I would outlast everyone, you know, meaning I would get more credibility if I were in the system the longest. And so this is the part of the prison system joke, you know. So if you work in a hospital, you get more money based off of your um, how long you've worked in the hospital, not necessarily by busting your ass and doing the best work. And so you earn cred by being there for a longer period of time. 
Getting rewarded for outlasting the next guy or gal was not my idea of meritocracy. You know, at this point, I realized that I needed to leave the position and try to go out on my own. My first foray into business was a failure. <laughs> I was just too hasty in choosing partners, um, and and that ended up costing my family about $25,000, right? Another dumb move. My next foray into business has gone much better. You know, I'm making more money than when I was at the hospital, but of course it comes with its own sacrifice, you know, no benefits, and, you know, I have to pay my own employee taxes. Now, it's it's truly meritocracy. I get paid exactly what I'm worth. This means that if I have more patients, I make more money. Fewer patients equal less money. It's my job to make sure that I have patients coming in the door. Indeed, as in 1996, sorry, this is the next quote. Indeed, as in 1996, our data indicates that most millionaires build wealth on their own. For a long time, I was blind. I thought that millionaires came from wealthy families. I thought that the millionaires had a head start. I thought it would be harder for me because I didn't come from money. I didn't have parents that went to college. I didn't have parents that discussed money matters with us. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, blah, 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 wah, 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 right? I realized I just didn't have enough education about money in order to understand that I too could become wealthy. Whose fault was that? I'm staring at the man in the mirror. Yep, that's right. My fault. Now that my wife and I have more knowledge, albeit still rudimentary compared to more seasoned investors, and since we've created margin at the end of the month, we are now ready to work our way towards both individual and generational wealth. The next quote about one in four millionaires reported that their fathers were blue collar workers. 19% were owners of small businesses. 4% were farmers. Only 9% were senior corporate executives, while 3% were physicians. About one in three millionaires paid for their own college expenses. Most, 88%, reported receiving $0 from trust, estates, gifts. I like numbers, right? Numbers make sense to me. Seeing these numbers gave me solace in that my background doesn't have to be an obstacle to becoming wealthy. I was fully resigned to the fact that I would be working until I was 62 to 65 because, you know, that's what my dad did and that I would just have to work harder than everyone else in order to reach the retirement milestone. Now I'm able to have my money work hard for me while I continue to work hard so that we can be more comfortable by 62 and if all goes according to plan by 50 to 55, you know, so my money is now working harder than than what I can do. So my money is starting to make more money per day than I make. My dad was definitely a blue-collar worker. If you followed the blog for any time, you'll know that my dad is my Superman. He volunteered to go into the service during the Vietnam War. He became a medic for the 101st Airborne, Airborne all the way, and served in Vietnam long enough to prevent his brother from going to Vietnam. He came home, put his head down, and worked. He had multiple mouths to feed. I only remember my dad taking a couple of days off, a couple of days off of, from work um, in all my years growing up. Once was because he was hit by a sledgehammer at work, and the second was after a couple hundred pound chain landed on him while he was about 30 feet underground. I won't inherit any money from my parents. That's all right. I inherited a heck of a strong work ethic. This alone will continue to serve me well throughout my lifetime. I will be in that group that came from blue collar workers and paid for my own college expenses, nor received any money from trusts or gifts. My wife also came from a blue-collar family with a much stronger work ethic than I have. 
She also did not receive any gifts from a trust and she paid for her own own college expenses. It can be done. You don't have to come from money to make money. Next quote, 51% of the respondents, about 1,500 adults, were of the opinion that the rich are rich because he or she had more advantages than others, while 50% indicated that the poor are poorer because of circumstances beyond his or her control. I was guilty of this. I started listening to Gary Vee back in 2016, and he said one thing that resonated with me. I came from a large family. You know, uh, my parents were divorced. My dad took custody of us kids, and um, I was the youngest, right? My dad was an alcoholic, and we were at the bar so much that I say I grew up at Belmont, which is a bar. There was rarely a day that I wasn't in a bar or a bowling alley of some sort. I'm the youngest of seven, the only one to graduate high school. I busted my ass to make life better for me and for my family. What I heard from Gary Vee was this. If there is anyone that has ever been in your situation and that person was able to lift themselves out of that situation and become a success, what's your excuse? Next quote. The typical American household has a net worth of just over 90000 and an annual income of approximately $52,000. As a family, we make about two and a half times the average American household, but have about four times the average net worth. I'm not saying this to brag because well, I actually feel like we're behind in our net worth, you know. Um, you know, a kick in the ass occurred when I realized that I'm no longer insurable for life insurance. I had some medical issues a few years back and... Um, Instead of getting 10 to 12 times my annual income in life insurance, I only got about three times my annual income. Should I die, my wife and kids would be screwed right now. Understanding this now more than ever, I have a more intense nature regarding building net worth now than I ever did in ever, any other prior years. I invest for my family. I invest to make sure that they will not be as screwed tomorrow as they are today. If you have kids and are able to insure yourself, this is something I wish I had done sooner in my life. Don't make the same mistake I did. One downfall to having a higher net worth than the average American is this. I have to be more specific in whose advice or knowledge I am following to influence my decisions. If one is just starting out, like I was many years ago, the advice of investing into a Roth IRA is earth-shattering, right? As a business owner, I now have access to other opportunities for investments that are also deductible on taxes. This is stuff that I wouldn't have understood years ago, but now I have a better grasp. Next quote, it is up to us to save more than we spend and live below our means. Social insecurity was not meant to be an account that allows for us to thrive. If one lives simply on social insecurity, the person may not have enough money to live after paying for basic costs such as mortgage, rent, health insurance, utilities, food. The best advice I can give on this is determine the lifestyle that you want to have when you retire. Based on the lifestyle that you want to have, how much money will you need every month or every year? Once you've established how much money you will need every month, turn this into a yearly need. Then you'll, have, you'll need about uh, 25 times that saved into an account that you can draw on in order to retire in that lifestyle. Uh, and this is obviously in an account that's generating revenue. My wife and I currently require about 57000 per year in order to live our life which isn't luxurious in the least bit. Based on this, 
we'll have to have at least 1.4 million in order for us to walk away from work. Ideally, we would have 33 times to live comfortably. That equals about 1.88 million. We got a long way to go. Don't feel bad if you aren't in that situation where you have enough money. Everyone's got to start somewhere. The starting point is to create a monthly budget. Once you know your outgo, how much money is leaving you, then look at your income. How much money are you making? If your income is less than your outgo, (laughs) no bueno. If your income is more than your outgo, what are you doing with the difference? What are you doing with that margin? When that margin is invested in something that's going to grow, it means that the money is making money. It is buying back hours and years off of your working life. Make sure you take advantage of that. Next quote. We found that parental frugality and willingness to teach their children money management impact their children's ability to transform income into wealth. Adult children who reported that their parents were frugal, discussed money-related matters, and demonstrated good money management skills were more likely to be prodigious accumulators of wealth compared to those who did not experience the same type of upbringing. Yeah, my parents sucked at this, right? My parents were frugal only because we had so many people living in one house. You know, not to sound stereotypical, but um, at any given moment, we had three to four generations living under one roof. My parents weren't rich, right? The house, which they still live in, has four bedrooms and two bathrooms. One bathroom doesn't work anymore. For as long as I can remember, there were at least eight people living in the house. The most that I can remember living in the house was 10. Imagine a submarine with limited beds, right? We slept in shifts. I worked overnights and my brother worked mornings and days, so we shared a bed. I slept while he worked and he slept while I worked. Wouldn't be surprising to see family sleeping on the floor or one of the couches. That was just life, right? We didn't take vacations. I remember taking a trip to the Indiana Dunes. That was the extent of our vacation away from Joliet. Didn't fly on my first plane until I got my first big big boy job at the age of 28. My parents bought me my first car. 1978 Ford F-150. Mind you, it was already 1996. <laughs> the car was 20 years old. Picture the Flintstones, you know. The, the truck had a rusted out floorboard. And I had to be careful when getting into the truck so as not to stick my foot through the floor. The bed of the truck wasn't much better. It was like walking around potholes. It had no muffler on it, and the neighbors could hear me coming from blocks away. Did have four-wheel drive, though. Had a good time driving through some of the fields and creeks. You know, those were the good old boy days. My parents didn't talk about money much, though. Aside from the fact that they didn't have any. (laughs) I can't say that my parents taught me about money. They taught me work ethic and how to make money, but not what to do with it once I got it. Again... If I can learn about money at an older age, there's no reason why anyone can't become better with money over time. Next quote. Not sharing with children how wealthy you are and frugality as an important, if not critical, component in wealth building. These are the keys to building generational wealth. I'm not sure I fully believe the first one. I want my kids to understand that wealth comes, that, that wealth comes with some sort of social responsibility. At this point, our kids are too young to understand wealth. Our youngest still struggles with understanding the value of money. 
sorry, my, my oldest still struggles with understanding the value of money. My youngest is, you know, a few months old. <laughs> Neither my wife nor I came from money. So uh, this is new territory for us. And with that, I mean, having mo- more money than we need to live, you know, so this is new, new ground. And we're not quite sure what to do or what to talk to our daughter about, but we realize that we we have to start having these discussions. Our kids understand frugality. You know, we don't buy things that uh, that we don't really have a need for, and we rarely spend money on wants at this point in time. Recently, I took my daughter with me to Walgreens to pick up some medication, and she walks through the toy aisle like, you know, so many kids want to do. She asked me if she could have something. I told her that she could only buy what she could afford. She had $3 with her and $20 at home. Everything she wanted was at least $10, and I told her I wouldn't loan her any money. At the end of the trip, she said, I don't even know why I came if I can't have anything. You know, these are the small lessons that I want her to understand. She can have whatever she can afford, nothing more. You know, I I spent too many years paying my way out of debt. I don't want to teach my child at a young age to go into debt or that she can have whatever she wants. Next quote, frugality is a set of behaviors that predicts net worth independent of one's age, income, and percentage of wealth that has been received through gifts or inheritance. Understanding our why makes being frugal much easier now than it was before. We have four kids, one with special needs. My personal goal is to make sure that my family will be well cared for, both now and in the future. We got our basic needs met. We have money left over at the end of the month. That money goes towards retirement, paying for kids' college, special needs trust fund, vacation money, padding the emergency fund, and paying down extra debt in our home. By living life with a margin, there's money left over to make sure that we are funding our future. For a long time, we carried credit card debt, whether it was from an Alaska trip, Poland trip, home remodel. We were consistently paying off our past instead of funding our future. Now that our priorities have flipped, we are living with less stress month to month. Next quote, there is no task too undignified as long as it's an honest day's work. All right, so here's my list, right? I cleaned horse stalls for years, worked for a short period of time in a sewage treatment plant, planted trees and swept streets, pushed carts, installed tires, cleaned bathrooms, drove a forklift, cashier, overnight stalker, worked in a hospital system as a PT and a private practice as a PT as a business owner, worked in home health as a PT, and worked in a skilled nursing home as a PT. As long as the paychecks keep rolling in, I'm going to do what needs to be done in order to keep the paychecks rolling in. That means cleaning the bathroom and plunging toilets? Then that's what's got to be done. No job is too low on a totem pole for me to do. As long as it keeps the company moving forward and I'm getting paid. Right? When I worked for Sam's Club, David Tanner was our manager. I had nothing but respect for him as a manager because he didn't hold back. Right? He was all about making sure that the business was making money and his people were doing their job. One morning we had a team meeting. I believe I talked about the team meetings before. Right? Who's number one? 8298. Anyway, this occurred every morning and every night. I remember him telling us to look at our paychecks and see who signed it. You know, it was signed by a Walton. This was after Sam Walton had passed. And he said something that hit me then and continues to stay with me all these years later. This is what he said. The signature at the bottom of your check says Walton. This means that if you work in the freezer section but are needed to push carts, you go push carts. If you work for Sam's Club but we temporarily need you to go do something at Walmart, you go to Walmart. As long as someone else is signing the checks, I work for that signature. 
Next quote, those who practice social indifference have a greater likelihood of building wealth. Trying to keep up with the Joneses is a losing battle, you know, especially with Facebook or Meta, Instagram, Snapchat. The Joneses are everywhere. New cars, new houses, new furniture, nice dinner dates, nice vacations. All of these pictures and posts at the tip of our fingers. If I try to keep up with those on my friends list, I drive myself broke. Instead, I drive a 10-year-old car. You held off on buying the seven-seater family vehicle until we actually needed six seats. We took a road trip this year, but it was a far cry from an Alaskan cruise or traveling to Poland for a vacation. We did buy new furniture this year, but with four kids, our primary concern is trying to keep them from being peed on, pooped on, vomited on, and so on and so forth. <laughs> I've um, never felt the need for external validation from anyone but a couple people in my life. Those couple of people will never give me validation based off the stuff that we own or my way of life. You know, But instead, I get validation on being a good person and doing the right thing. As long as I don't have to live up to someone's standards, I'm good. Next quote, taking financial responsibility for our financial decisions, sorry, taking responsibility for our financial decisions, regardless of our upbringing, relates to net worth. Net worth, again, this is the equation. What you own minus what you owe equals net worth. It's not about how much money you make per year. I'm not blind. I see acquaintances with cars much nicer than mine, knowing that these people make less money than I do. Makes me shake my head. As a younger person, I viewed retirement as a far-off abstract thing that I would not have to do um, anytime soon. Right? I invested a couple hundred here, a couple hundred there, but never anything structured. Now I'm over 40 and retirement is much closer on the horizon and God willing, I'm going to reach it. I can remember throwing my dad a birthday party when he turned 40. You know, The cake was made by my sister and the theme was over the hill can't imagine filling over the hill at my age, right? I'm just coming into my own as a financial producer for the family. I have no thoughts of retirement on the horizon yet. This doesn't mean that I'm not investing for her retirement as I want to have the money waiting for me when I get there. Like I said, God willing. Next quote, living a frugal lifestyle allows an individual to comfortably afford the level of consumption in their household. The more that I think about a frugal lifestyle, I would say that there are two decisions that have allowed us to have margin and live within our means. The first is that we live in tight quarters. Our house payment is about a little bit short of $1,500 a month, and this is about 12 to 13% of our gross income. We don't have excessive things. For instance, we don't need to rent a storage unit to store stuff that we never use. As a matter of fact, I have plenty of room within the garage in order to work out in the garage. This also saves me money on a gym membership, but God, it's cold as hell. <laughs> cold as hell. It's, but it's cold during the wintertime. Um, finally, uh, we drive old cars. We recently purchased a new-to-us car. You know, the car is a 2017 QX60, just big enough for us to take road trips with the kids. Uh, the, the new QX60 that's coming out this year is expected to cost 42000 But because we purchased a four-year-old vehicle, we were able to save almost $20,000. Also, we didn't purchase the extended warranty, which, you know, which also kept more money in our pocket. I think that these two decisions, living in a smaller than average house and purchasing a four-year-old car, are large reasons why we have margin at the end of the month. Next quote. 
Most millionaires next door whom we have studied report that they never purchased a home that was more than three times the amount of their annual income. <laughs> I couldn't imagine spending three times our annual income on a home. We only paid about 30% more than our annual income or 1.3 times our annual income for the house that we're in now. You know, we're currently looking for a new home, and, and I think our top-end price is going to be about two and a half times our annual income. At Providence Catholic, uh, which is where I went to high school, you know, we had a class in which we discussed finances. We were told to never purchase a house more than 2.5 times our income because then we would become house poor. We didn't get a lot of financial tips from Providence, but this is one that stuck with me over the years. Next quote. Instead, a new home purchase for this group was typically driven by quality, appearance, public schools, and neighborhood. Public schools and neighborhood are the driving forces behind our plan to move. Our neighborhood has good people living there, right? Our neighbors are awesome. Public school system is a little bit above average. I was a kid growing up in Joliet in the 1980s. Gangs were rampant and I typically fell asleep to either gunshots or sirens from ambulances or police cars. My parents moved to Elwood in 1990 because the violence was getting so bad. Our house was shot eight times and eventually burned down. Elwood was a small town in which everyone knew everyone, right? It was hard to go out for a long walk without people stopping to see if you needed a ride home. Shootings are becoming more prevalent where I live now. The shootings are getting closer and closer to our little neighborhood, right? Our little subdivision. That's how we know it's time to move. A smaller town, not directly off the highway, with a better school system. That's our goal. You know, there are a few towns around us that fit that scenario. The appearance and quality of the home, although important, are not the biggest reasons for us choosing a home. We've decided on which cities we will look at, and then the size and price will be the determining factors for us in making the final choice. Average Americans, next quote, sorry, average Americans own seven pairs of jeans. While the average American pays under $50 per pair, the millionaires in our story pay just over that mark, spending at most $50 on denim. I own three pairs of jeans, or at least I thought I did. Apparently, I only own two, and uh, I've had these jeans for at least eight years. I rarely wear jeans, and I believe that I paid about $21 a pair. I do most of my clothes shopping at either Costco or Sam's Club. Every once in a while, I'll hit up the clearance section at Kohl's. Dollar saved is a dollar available to invest later. Next quote. Toyota and Honda top the list of cars driven by millionaires. Function over flash, right? When I worked at Sam's Club, there was a worker in TMA, which is the tire area, that would take some time and shed some wisdom. Vince, you can drive a Toyota or a Porsche. One will last you a long period of time, will always be predictable, and you can be sure that you have quality. The other is flashy. When it breaks, you have to spend a lot of money to fix it. Maintenance is expensive, but you will churn heads everywhere you go. He happened to be talking about choosing the right life partner, but it seemed appropriate to add here also. I personally have always been a Hyundai person. The last two cars have averaged well above 200,000 miles. My current car will be at about 200,000 miles in the next four years. The goal is to reduce the need to buy a new car every few years. I've talked with some older individuals that chose to replace their car every 100,000 miles. I always wondered how much money one would have, you know, to, to be able to buy a car every five years. Now I know that the person will always have car payments. I just don't understand how a person prioritizes extravagance over freedom. These people are still working, even though they are beyond typical retirement age. They're literally working to maintain a lifestyle. Next quote. Only about one in ten... 
roughly 11% of decamillionaires. Decamillionaires means that they are worth more than $10 million. Rated attending a top-rated college as a very important factor in explaining their socioeconomic status. You'll never accuse me of, ten, of attending a top-rated college. You know, I was recruited by Loyola and Harvard while in high school. And I mostly attribute that to being a Mexican with a high ACT score. I attended Joliet Junior College, oldest community college in the country. This school worked well for me because, well, I fit in there. It's just a bunch of people that didn't grow up with a silver spoon trying to improve their lot in life. When I went to UIC in Chicago, it was the worst decision that I made. It cost me more money to go to UIC for one year than it did to go to Governor State University for two years as an undergrad. Also, one year of undergraduate study was almost as much as one year of PT school at Governor State. I'm a panda. All right, so Governor State's mascot, I think, is a jaguar, but it's an inside story. Governor State saved me a lot of money with regards to student loans, which allowed me to have this journey towards financial freedom a lot sooner than I should have had I had gone to a more expensive school. School choice is extremely important, but not for the reason of advancing one's career. Instead, it's for reducing overall expenditure for school. Next quote. The median net worth of a college graduate, approximately 292000 is more than four times that of high school graduates. These are the stats that I learned years ago, and this is the basis of my belief that student loans should not be canceled. Yep, I said it. Don't cancel student loans. Crucify me. I get it. I believe in personal responsibility and accountability. When someone takes a loan, it should be paid back. I hear people say that, you know, students don't understand how student loans will negatively affect them later in life. I get it. I hear it. Whose fault is that? Is it the school's fault? Is it the fault of the loan servicer? At what point do we put the onus of responsibility on the student? I still have some student loans. I've categorized these loans into smart and dumb moves. The loans that I have left are categorized into dumb move. These last 20000 are categorized as UIC payments. I didn't look into the cost of school at UIC. That's my fault. My responsibility. It's not fair for me to not pay what I owe. I can't blame UIC for being so darn enticing, right? Being downtown Chicago. Because college graduates are going to earn significantly more than non-college graduates, this is of course assuming that the student made a conscious choice in careers. I don't think that the government should give college graduates an additional head start beyond those that didn't go to college. Some chose to go to the trades because of the exorbitant cost of college. These people made conscious decisions to avoid the cost pitfalls of college. Should the government also give these people the same amount of money that the government will forgive? I think so, and I don't think our government can afford it. Well, there's a lot of stuff our government can't afford nowadays. We are just going into the build back broke plan. I had a head start. I got a college degree. A few of them, actually. These degrees caused me to dig a hole for myself as student loan debt, right? I went into the hole financially. But these degrees also bought me a bigger shovel by way of a larger annual salary compared to the average household. By simply living on the average household salary and paying the rest in debt, a PT could easily pay off the balance over time. Next quote, 
more than nine out of ten of the top five percent of wealth holders in America reported that being well disciplined was very important in explaining their socioeconomic status. There was a time in our life which we spent money lavishly. We bought new cars after our first child was born because, you know, of course, a baby can't be safe in an old car. We went to Alaska for our honeymoon because we deserved to cross some stuff off our bucket list. We remodeled our home because the way it looked when we moved in wasn't modern enough. Those decisions set us back tens of thousands of dollars that we didn't have at the time. Now we watch our pennies with regards to the lavish spending. Just doing this allows us to enjoy the small pleasures of life without the worry of carrying credit card debt. In just a few years, we have accumulated wealth and have every expectation to have between 2 to $3 million by the age of 65, assuming we continue to work that long. Next quote. But people are still so rudderless when they come out of school, just like when they went into school, but now they have tons of debt too. This one kills me. So many kids. Yeah, I'm old. Kids graduating college with degrees that only serve as a ticket to the next degree. I went to school to be a teacher initially. If I didn't go to PT school, I'd still be a teacher. It's that simple. I'd have a job based on the degree that I earned. Dave Ramsey teases that students go to school for left-handed puppetry, meaning they graduate with a degree that has no real-world application. Going to school for communication, health sciences, pre-PT, psychology, exercise physiology, and so many others, it's just a setup to continue to go on for another degree or accept a job that one could get without a degree. Would you like fries with that? Schools have become a business. We can't fault the business for making a profit off those that don't know any better. The crime is that no one sat the student down and actually explained the real world of cost of benefits and return on investment. If someone sat that student down and the student still made these choices of running up student debt to live a dream, well, then they earned that position. Parents need a parent. No one allows their kids to touch hot stoves. If the parent is not parenting, the kid gets burned by student loans. No one should be allowing their kids to make these large decisions alone. The problem is that the kids are getting burned. They just don't realize it until six months after graduation from college. Next quote. Economically successful individuals tend to choose or create or eventually find a career that is right in that it provides ample income while also providing satisfaction. This goes hand in hand with what I've talked about earlier. When I first started going to college, my dad advised me to become a financial analyst. He told me that it was a way to make money and easy money at a young age. How he knew this, I have no clue. My dad was a union laborer. But I knew that this wasn't going to be for me because in high school, I would get more giddy over having consecutive serial numbers on my dollars than I would for how much money was actually in my hand. I chose to become a teacher. It wasn't going to make me rich or, you know, maybe it would. Teachers are one of the more likely professions to become millionaires. I left the profession because teaching didn't match my morals. Hmm. We hold teachers in high regard, but for me, it just... It didn't match the moral compass that I had set. As a PT, I had already accumulated a lot. $80,000 was a lot of money in my mind. Um, a lot of debt, right? Once in the PT field, I knew I wasn't leaving until I paid down all of my debt. Once in the field, though, I fell in love with treating specific patient populations. 
I enjoy showing up to work every day. Even after 13 years, I still enjoy the work. Also, it pays me more than I would have made as a school teacher. Next quote, without a consistent source of revenue, there is little to invest. Requires finding a career in which one's skills, knowledge, and abilities can be put to use, in which one can find a passion, or one that provides income enough to meticulously save and exit the traditional world of work early. I know many PTs, PTAs that have left the profession because of burnout, lack of passion, or other opportunities. It kills me to see people leave a profession that has so much potential to help society, provide a wage that allows one to become wealthy, and one that could provide personal satisfaction. In order to become wealthy, there has to be margin at the end of the month. Leaving a position that pays well would be a hard choice for me at this point in our wealth building journey. Those PTs that experience burnout and leave the profession end up with a horrible return on investment. Attrition is real, and we can't ignore what we see in the healthcare professions. Next quote, many millionaires today continue to work into their 60s, spend on average 38 hours per week working. I have a few friends that are multi-millionaires. They're all in their 60s-ish, maybe early 70s. All of them continue to work. When I have these discussions about retirement, they all have a similar answer. I can retire after lunch if I'd like, but I still enjoy my work. I don't work for money anymore. I work for enjoyment. To be fair, all of them are within a family business and are going to move the business down to a child. They no longer work the 60 to 80 hours per week that they did when they opened the business. They now come into the shop, so to speak, when they need to and do what needs to be done to help out. This is where I would like to be at some point in life. I don't foresee a point in time where I'm not, treat, where I'm not a treating clinician, but I want the definition of treating clinician to change over time. I want to consult or help new grads, those that want to become better clinicians, Treat patients, right? I'm saving money and investing money now so that, you know, the hat that I wear for my career can continue to change. Currently, I'm a business owner that treats patients, so self-employed. I don't foresee myself ever wanting to scale up the business as a business owner. I don't want to manage PTs within a business. That's not where I see my strengths. I want to go towards consulting other PTs with regards to how to treat patients. Next quote, most people in America must hunt and gather every day. They rely on their jobs day in and day out to provide income to survive as 78% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. This ain't a judgment, man. You know, I, I didn't pull this quote out to be negative. We used to be in this position and, and it was recent, you know, just last year. We wouldn't have been able to manage a $400 emergency. We lived on credit cards and we didn't pay them off monthly. We were living well above our means, also known as Congress. I'm kidding. Actually, I'm not, but that's all right. We now have enough saved that if we had to take time off work for a week or a couple of months, we wouldn't go back into debt. It's doable. It doesn't require special knowledge or skills, just some discipline and work ethic. We ain't special. We have a higher than average income, but we went into debt to do it. But it can be done on any income. You'll hear the story of the, the person who worked at UPS who is now a multimillionaire based off the stock market. It can be done, but you've got to have margin at the end of your month. Next quote. The income from a career can't last if you cannot last in the career. You know, this goes back to what I was saying above. This, this little blurb connected with me in the book. In healthcare, 
I read, you know, uh, many PTs are looking to get out of the profession. You know, when you follow some of these uh, Facebook groups, they're just looking to get out. They're burned out. They're disenfranchised with the profession. I know a couple of PTs that spent over $250,000 to become a PT. At that point, one has to either make a lot of money, either within the profession or through another profession, in order to release the handcuffs of student loan debt. This profession can and should create millionaires of so many within the profession. We make well above the average household salary. A dual-income family would be expected to make significantly more than the average income. If one is burned out in this career, then that person needs to make a decision to leave the job and find one that will provide life satisfaction. This may or may not come with a pay cut, but the trade-off could be worth it. Next quote. The experience of jumping out of bed each morning and loving your job requires alignment. You know, I've been doing a PT for like 13 years, right? And there was only roughly a six to eight week period, which I didn't enjoy coming to work. People that have followed me, they know the story that I quit this job over lunch. I told the owner that I wasn't coming back. There's a lot of negative issues in that job, and it just wasn't worth the way it made me feel at night. You know, I like to be able to, to sleep well at night knowing that you know, I passed the dad test and my dad would be proud of what I did. The commute to that job was roughly three minutes and I was paid fairly, you know, but I couldn't continue to allow the moral insult that it was placing on me. You know, it, it didn't pass the dad test. So, yeah, I, I had to leave. When I worked at Sam's Club, you know, it was a blast. I got paid to work and have fun. You know, as a PT, I get paid to work and solve puzzles. I got no complaints with my career thus far. I still enjoy the profession. But I always want to taste other portions of the profession. In my life, I've had eight jobs. For the most part, Sam's Club was the best fit for me. When I felt that I had reached the top of one position, I could always transfer to another position within the store. And then I worked towards becoming, you know, better at that position. In 2003, you know, pat on the back, I was voted Employee of the Year. And that was probably the worst thing that could have happened to me. I'm more about the journey than the destination. A few months after being named Employee of the Year, I quit. I had to try to climb other hills. I'm still trying to climb hills. And I think that this motivation is what makes me satisfied with the profession. There's always a hill to climb, right? My next profession within the profession, my next position, sorry, within the profession will most likely be my set off into the sunset position. I will work that position and try to get to the top of the hill in that position also, but that will probably be my uh, the, the closing scene of my career in PT. Next quote, we know that the typical balance sheet affluent millionaire had an annual realized median household income of $89,167 when he first became a millionaire. One half had incomes that were less than this figure. So many believe that one needs to have a big shovel in order to become wealthy. It helps, assuming one isn't spending money like Congress. Anyone can become wealthy in today's world. It just takes discipline. We make well above that $89,000 figure, but it wasn't until a couple of years ago that we started having conversations about wealth. It w and it wasn't actually until the pandemic that we stopped spending money on whatever we wanted. Once we had the discipline to stop spending money, our ability to invest greatly increased. It's hard to believe how much money we have at the end of the month now, even though we aren't making any more than we did one to two years ago. Next quote. Most rich people in this country become rich and remain that way because they receive much more satisfaction from building wealth and financial security than displaying expensive store-bought badges. 
You know, this is simply the process, right? The process is more important than the end point. I can't tell you how much enjoyment I get from reading about the market and inflation than I do from cashing in some of the profit to pay down our home each month. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm constantly now learning and reading, trying to figure out where the money should go to make more money. And I used to be very intense on studying for my profession, you know, for, for PT. And, and right now I'm at a crossroads. Do I continue along the path of studying investing? which at this point is generating about $300 a month in income. Well, on a bad month, it might actually lose money. Or do I go back to studying my craft of PT, which generates about $90,000 a year in income? When I write it out like this, the choice seems easy, right? But I could probably continue the entirety of my career and only put in a little bit of time each week and still have put in more time into the PT craft than a majority of PTs. If I don't put in the time to learn about the market, there's a greater chance that I will lose money month over month. This is why the choice becomes a little bit more difficult. At the current time, I'm generating about 25% profit on the money that I have in my fund investment account. This is well above what my retirement portfolio is doing. The journey is the process, and the process is the reward. So I think I'm going to continue learning about the market because it looks like that's my way out. Next quote, as a result of being laid off, even though I was considered a solid employee, I learned at an early age that you cannot depend on a company to take care of you. No matter how hard you work your job, I have always been self-employed and could retire today. Since being self-employed for the previous three years, we've been able to become financially stable. This comes at a great cost, though, meaning that I have increased travel time and put in typically more than 40 hours of work per week. Now that we have four kids, I'm debating how much my time is worth. Could I afford to take a job, you know, become an employee and leave the business in order to obtain time freedom, meaning as an owner, there's no time off. There are no benefits. I take home the profits, but I also eat any losses as an employee. The commute would be much shorter than what I'm doing now. It would roughly save me six to seven hours of commute time per week. That time is also valuable. This is a hard decision to make, and I'm blessed that I'm even in this position, right? I'm blessed to have this problem. This is truly a first-world problem. Growing up, my dad went to where the work was located, meaning he would have to drive one to three hours to and from work as the work site shifted every few months. He got paid the same regardless of where he worked, and he had to eat the time and eat the cost of gas. I do realize how blessed I am to even have to make these decisions now. Next quote. Economically successful individuals use challenges and career setbacks as springboards for greater experiences in the future. Little time blaming people. I failed. I failed multiple times. I've bounced back. I left Payless Hospital to partner with a clinic. I was dumb and naive. Didn't know what to expect. I failed. This was a great learning experience for me. I learned about overhead, profit margin, EBITDA, marketing, sales, so on and so forth. I took on too much overhead compared to the amount of income I was able to generate. I lost a lot of money in that relationship. Now, I make more money than I was making then. I have more autonomy. I have better relationships with providers. I have better relationships with patients. I was able to recover. Take a risk. It might fail, right? You, you might fail. You might fail again. You might fail multiple times. Don't make the same mistakes twice. As long as there is no death blow then the risk will allow me to make more and do better next time. 